incremental developers are uh, to me heroes uh, today in our system. They, they, they are, I, I look at them in the same way that I think you would look at soldiers in a battlefield. Um, people who are out doing something that, you know, in a very narrow sense will benefit them because, you know, as a soldier, when you go off to war to fight, you want to come back to a country that, that you, you know, you want to, you want it to be better. You, you believe in some ideals and some things. Um, but, but in a, in a broader sense, they're doing something that benefits all of society and, and, and they are disproportionately undertaking risk and sacrifice in order to make that happen. And to me, that's, that's what a hero is. And so I, I, when I get around people who are doing incremental development or are incremental developers, I feel like I'm in the presence of, of a modern day hero, someone who is, you know, uh, doing something heroic for the betterment of society. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome to episode number 44 of the Placemaking Podcast. One of the best shows yet is coming your way. I am excited to share this next conversation with all of you. Charles Marone, known as Chuck to friends and colleagues, is the founder and president of Strong Towns and the author of Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. He's on this show today. Can you believe it? He is a professional engineer, licensed in the state of Minnesota, and a land use planner with over two decades of experience. He holds a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and a master's of urban and regional planning, both from the University of Minnesota. He has presented the Strong Towns concept to hundreds in cities and towns across North America. He is featured in several documentaries and is named as one of the 10 most influential urbanists of all time by Planetson. Strong Town supports thousands of people across the United States and Canada who are advocating for a radically new way of thinking about the way we build our cities and our world. Strong Towns believes that in order to truly thrive, our cities and towns must stop valuing efficiency and start valuing resilience. Stop betting our futures on huge irreversible projects and start taking small incremental steps and iterating based on what we learn. To stop fearing change and start embracing a process of continuous adaptation. To stop building our world based on abstract theories and start building it based on how our places really work and what our neighbors actually need today. And finally, to stop obsessing about future growth and start obsessing about our current finances. But most importantly, they believe that strong citizens from all walks of life can and must participate in Strong Town's approach from citizens to leaders, professionals to neighbors, and everyone in between. In this episode, we are going to discuss the mission of the Strong Towns movement, the attributes of successful developments, and how they can impact 
the surrounding neighborhoods and towns in which they are done, and how developers can learn from the past in order to help build developments that ultimately benefit their cities and communities way into the future. There's loads of great information in this episode, and I am greatly appreciative of Charles for taking the time out of his extremely busy schedule to discuss the topics of strong towns with me. As always, if you have enjoyed the show, I'd ask that you please subscribe to this show and share with your friends in the industry. I promise there's a few more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So, without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Matt. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, I'm honored to have you on here. I really am. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, ever since I read your book, Strong Towns. And I, like I said, it's a complete honor to have you on here. Oh, well, so, thank you. That's very kind of you. I, I, it's amazing how many people, when you write a book, uh, you get to meet that you had never, you know, had a chance to meet before. So I, I've yeah. enjoyed that very much. So I'm glad Good. you found it helpful. Yeah, it's, it, was, uh, it was an eye-opening book as a, as a fellow engineer, uh, civil engineer. It's, um, it's eye-opening to say the least. Well, you will, uh, you will appreciate the next one then because I have a book okay. coming out in, in August called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. <laughs> and it's, it's all about transportation. So it focuses, uh, Strong Towns is book one. This is book two. We have five, I've got five planned um, in this series, but the second one's on transportation and it focuses on our profession. So yeah. I'll have to check that out. You're a very <laughs> busy man. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it, do keep very, very busy. It's It's interesting how much our, conversation at Strong Towns intersects with so many aspects of, of life, particularly parts of the, you know, human experience that is changing very rapidly right now, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's housing or transportation, uh, um, you know, or, or economic development, it, it seems like every one of those paradigms is being rewritten in real time right now. So Absolutely. yeah, we're kind of feel like we're right in the middle of it all. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So I gave you a little intro before the show, before our call, but if you're ready, I'd like to just jump right into kind of the meat of the topic here. And then, you know, we'll kind of get into your background as we're going through this, but what spurred the idea for this strong towns movement that you're, you're championing right now? And what kind of hurdles did you face when you just started telling others about this about this idea, about this movement, um, what kind of kickback did you receive? Yeah, the, I, I, for me, everything started when I was asking questions as a young engineer and a young planner. And I, 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 I tell people I wasn't a very good engineer because I did have too many questions. And, and a lot of engineering today is is taking received wisdom and applying it. Mm-hmm. And I was one of these people who were like, why, why are we doing this? And in the planning profession, it became a lot of the same things, you know, a lot of what planners do in terms of administer zoning codes and write plans. We, we, we think of it as, as we, we, we would like to think of it as, you know, looking out into the future, but the reality is it's, it's very backward looking. It's very like, what have we done and how do we continue this trend? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just, I saw the cities that I was working in and the projects I was working on, not really having the 
the, the benefits that we were saying that they did. I, every city I was working with was growing very, very quickly. I mean, that's why I was there because I was brought in as like the growth expert mm-hmm. and we would be making these investments and doing these things. And, and yet I could see the city have been doing this for years and years, yet their taxes were going up, their budgets were stretched. They were having to make like difficult cuts. And, and I just said like, this is happening in times of plenty. What's gonna happen when things are not, are not so crazy robust? Right. Um, I actually sat down and started to put pen to paper, beginning with my own street in front of my house. And I I knew how much the street cost. Uh, I knew how much I was paying in taxes and I knew how the cash flow worked in the city. And so I just sat down and said, how does this work out? And I found out that it would take the city almost four decades to to collect enough money. To recoup that. Yeah, Yeah. For me to pay for actually the road in front of my house. I'm like, well, that, that doesn't work. <laughs> and so I started on this journey of like looking at, at many different projects that I had been involved in doing that same kind of math and it didn't work anywhere. Um, you asked what some of the pushback was when I started to bring this up and started to share this with my professional colleagues who I thought would be really fascinated in this. Like, wow, I never thought about that. Um, they didn't want to hear it. And in fact, I, started to become like the pariah, like got disinvited to meetings that I would normally be at. And like, we don't want Chuck here. He's, he's Mr. Negative. Um, And so I I started to write this blog in 2008, really as a way to um, sort out my thoughts and kind of figure out if I could discover the, 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 the answer to the question, why are cities going broke? Why despite all the growth and the job creation and the infrastructure investment and, and all the things that we're doing to, to achieve economic success, why are cities struggling so deeply? And that, that's what I set out to, to try to answer that question. And, and I wound up meeting, you know, literally millions of, millions of people reading our stuff. I'd never dreamed that this conversation would go in this way, but, but, you know, people started to read it and pass it on. And, and now what started off as a movement where I would say, this is the Strong Downs movement and, and we're trying to build Strong Downs. And I would have people laugh at me and say, what is this, like you and your dog? Or like, what are you talking about? And now it is literally like me and thousands of people around the world who are, are pushing on this. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, we'll get to that in a second, but when you lay it out in the book, it just, it just makes so much sense logically that it's kind of hard to dispute really what, what you're saying, because people can see what's happening all around them. I mean, it's, it's tangible. Um, a lot of times we don't see the the monetary impact uh, as a citizen, but um, you know, you hear about it still. So. I think that was the hard part for me in the, in the early days was that, I was fairly convinced that I was wrong, that, you know, the, the, when I run the numbers in front of my own house and it works out in such a crazy way, my gut instinct is that there's something I'm not, there's something I'm just missing here. Right. Like, it, it can't work like this. And then when I started running it on literally dozens of projects that I had worked on, and the numbers are even crazier in some cases. I mean, projects that have hundred year payback windows and things like this that I thought were great projects when I was doing them from a civil engineering standpoint. Um, I started to become 
like really almost weirded out. Like how, how is this possible that this is working and this doesn't make any sense. And, and I started to, you know, piece things together and I wound up having to delve deeply into human psychology to understand because, because I was part of this. I mean, I firmly believe that when we paved the road in front of my house, I was creating wealth and prosperity for everybody. And it took me a long time. And so part of what you get in the book is you get a, an accelerated uh, learning curve from going from kind of immersed idiot, me, you know, like deeply kind of blind to this to having to figure things out really over more than a decade. And, and, and I'm, I'm able to kind of lay it out because this wasn't something where I began skeptical of this stuff and then, you know, kind of proved it, you know, motivated reasoning. I am the true convert. I mean, the one who thought when we build the frontage road and the big box store and the interchange and add the extra lanes to the highway, and when we can run sewer and water out to this site and when we can make this infrastructure investment, we are building a strong, great America. And so the, the fact that none of that is true, um, and it's so obviously not true, um, to me was uh, this, this kind of deeply personal journey of discovery at which every step I was skeptical. And so I, I, it's, it's a little bit easier for me to explain it because I had to explain it to myself. I, I, I do feel oftentimes that our our discourse around city issues and, and, and issues of growth and development and investment. Um, we we, we, we kind of want to look for a villain, uh, you know, like the, the advocates hate the engineers and, and you know, they want to fight with the planners. And I, I, I've, I've been more of the mindset of asking how good people end up doing things that are, are unhelpful. Because I, I, I know a lot of civil engineers. I know a lot of planners. I know a lot of economic development advisors. I don't know any that I would consider like evil people. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't know any that are not compassionate. I, I, I remember working for the DOT and, and having someone uh, get in a car crash on a place where there had been multiple crashes and it was an elderly woman and she died. She, she, she was, she was hit and struck and killed. And I watched a grown man, a, a, a grown man who did not know this woman and did not know anything about her other than that she was killed at an intersection that was part of a system that he was managing that he wanted to fix and change, sit and, and weep openly, like sit and cry. Um, because someone had died. I, this is this is what I see as engineers. I mean, I I, I see people who are good people, and so I, I had to kind of go back to like the question of how did we get here, and, and we really mm -hmm. got here because we were trying to solve a very simple economic problem. You know, how do you get out of and stay out of the Great Depression? And the way you stay out of the Great Depression is you go build a bunch of stuff invest. and you put people, right. You, you invest quote unquote, <laughs> you, you, you put people to work building things. Right. And, and after world war II, when we started to build this new version of America, you know, the suburbs are basically like a machine to create GDP growth, like a, a machine to create transactions. Because as mm. soon as you go out and build that highway and build that frontage road, and put in that uh, development with the cul-de-sacs and the sewer and the water and the sidewalks and all that stuff, 
Uh, now you have to build homes that puts people to work. Now you got to mm -hmm. put dishwashers and wash machines and, and automobiles within that home. Uh, now you have to sell those people encyclopedias and Amway and like everything else. You, you, you've created this platform for uh, basically like GDP churn for economic uh, transactions that take place. And, and so long as we measure the economy in transactions, like more transactions is success, building this style of America over and over again is like a very easy way for economists to look at their spreadsheets and say, like, we're winning, like, this is all working well. The, the problem is, as you know, and, and I, you know, I kind of came to understand at a certain point was that every one of these roads we build has to be fixed. And every one of these pipes we put in has to be maintained. And every one of these neighborhoods we put in has to have a park and police service and transit service and, and all of these other things layered on it. And when you start to look at the tax base and the wealth that is created, like actually in those neighborhoods, and how much you can tax that and how much you can charge people in there and all this, it's not sufficient enough to make good on all those promises, mm -hmm. let alone the pensions and everything else that's kind of accumulated on top of that chassis of, of you know, unproductive uh, development pattern. And so what I realize is that if you can grow very quickly, you can generate a lot of cash for yourself as a community and feel very wealthy but you're doing it by taking on these enormous liabilities over the long term. And when you just run that out in time, you see the exact pattern we've created. Mm -hmm. Cities grow, they feel very, very rich. Over time, things start to uh, come due, they start to wear out, you gotta start yeah. to fix them. Service life is, yep. It, it, we understand this, we got this in college, like this is very simple, this is very basic. Um, our response to that is to raise taxes, uh, take on debt, and then try to induce even more growth because the more growth we can get, right. Mm -hmm. and, and you wind up in this situation where we are now, where we're literally out as a, as a country. I mean, I don't know if this creates a dissonance for you, but we're mailing people thousands of dollars because a huge swath of our population can't make ends meet. And, 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 and we've created this system that like literally if we don't grow, by two, three, 4% next year, the whole thing collapses. And I'm like, well, that is, that is the, that seems like the most fragile kind of system we can create. So thus strong, strong being the opposite of fragile, right? Of weak. Right. We nailed it there. I mean, just to take all of that and distill that into the one, <clears throat> sorry, the mission of strong towns if you were to distill that, you know, it's it's pretty much what we've discussed, but into one sentence, what, what would you say that would be? Well, our mission is to support a model of development that allows our cities to become financially strong and resilient. So how do we how do we set about assembling the places that we're going to live in and inhabit in a way that actually uh, makes those places stronger over time? And you know that 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 is a that that is a simple synopsis of what is a like deeply complex set of intersecting things. You know right. because you you have the federal you know government infrastructure policies and all this. You have uh, our economic policies. 
you have individual wants and needs at, at the block level and you have, you know, everything else from how we cite schools to how we live together as families to where our churches and religious institutions go and how they interact. And what we have just found is that this is, you know, what we wind up talking about every day is just kind of humanity and human existence and what that means today. You know, we, we, we call cities human habitat. Cause that's what it is. Yeah. And you know, when we think of it as human habitat, it kind of touches on every aspect of our lives. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, the idea that you, you were mentioning all these, these government programs and everything, but to, to bring it down to the town level, to the, to the block, to the city, you can start that grassroots movement and it's much easier to conceptualize and tackle at that level then and then hopefully you know it spreads across across the u.s but uh as you know it's that's what it sounds like you're essentially starting from the town level because that's the most um, yeah well I, i think for me you know starting out in this when i started to write my blog you know what, what, what was a blog back in 2008 my, my first thought was i'm going to try to help uh communicate this to other engineers and planners um you know i'm going I'm to share what i have found with other people like me because if they knew the information that that i know they would want to do things way different mm-hmm. and the reality was, is like that I was wrong. Like that's, that's not true. (laughs) And that's not true for, for a bunch of very human reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, If we put the best spin on it, um, it is, you know, the reaction that I would get in the early days from engineers and and, and planners was, wow, that's interesting. Um, And then the second answer was, you must be missing something. Um, you know, which is exactly your, your what typical I thought, thought yeah. process. Yeah. Right. And then the third was, eh, you know, uh, great, but I, there's nothing I can do. Like I got to work on this street. And it, it was very frustrating to me because I wanted to start a revolution within the professions and it just was never going to happen. Um, there's an Upton Sinclair quote, and I think it's, it, it, it paints this in a, in, a, in a bad light, but I, I don't <laughs> think it's unfair. I think it's very human. The Upton Sinclair quote is, it's very difficult to get a man to change his mind about something when his job depends on him not changing his mind. And I, I think if we humanize that, you know, I have to feed my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to, you know, uh, make a living. And if you're telling me that the work that I'm doing is actually making things worse and I need to have a completely different business model, I don't know what that business model looks like. And so yeah. it's hard for me to get on board with that project when it makes my entire existence and my, my training, my degree, my, my, my work environment, it makes all that, calls all that into question. Mm-hmm. So I moved on to elected officials and I thought, <laughs> You know, if I could just convince like elected and appointed officials that this needs to be different. And the reaction there was a lot better. It was like, wow, you're explaining something I never understood before. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is really helpful. This explains why things aren't working. 
And they're like, yeah, but we, we can't do anything about it. And I'm like, why? And they're cause, cause the people will get pissed off at us. Like no one's, no, no <laughs> one's going to vote for voted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one's going to vote for me. If I come out and say like, we can't do this big project or we have to change this or, um, so that that's when I started to take stock of who actually was reading our stuff and who actually was interested in strong towns. Um, we had a thing where we just invited people to come, come to Minneapolis and we're going to all get together and just chat and talk about strong towns. And we had, this was like in 2014 or something like that. And we had a uh, hundred some people show up from all over the country. And I'm like, this is insane. Like I had no idea <laughs> this many people would show up. And guess who they were? They were computer programmers, florists. Uh, one person ran like a clothing store. Uh, a couple of people ran grocery stores. They were um, students. They were, you know, people who just like, like to bike. What it was not was engineers, planners, and elected officials. That's who it wasn't. It was a whole bunch of other people. And the thing that they had in common was that they really cared deeply about a place and they wanted, to, they wanted it to be better. Mm -hmm. And so we have since then, really since that get together in 2014, we created a new strategic plan. We created a new approach. And we said, what we really need to do is create momentum around this wide swath of people that want to affect their places and, and make their cities better. And that's been like the, the backbone of our movement. We, we do have, you know, elected and appointed officials that are part of this, about 15% of our audience is that. Uh, about 15% of our audience, we would call technical professionals. So mm -hmm. people who work, you know, within these technical professions, but that leaves 60%, you know, plus of our audience that just identify, self-identifies as concerned citizens. And, you know, don't underestimate what a concerned citizen can do mm -hmm. when they show up at a meeting or get four of their neighbors together or, you know, decide to go out and, and, and fix up that rundown house up the street. They can do astounding things and really change the entire momentum of a community. Yeah, definitely. And maybe potentially, you know, start to affect the elected officials <laughs> they're as they are the constituents so yeah no that's that's awesome that's it's cool to hear how you guys were pivoting a little bit based on understanding who the as citizens we are all uh, obviously invested in our surroundings but uh you know to get those that are really passionate about it on board really helps out your cause well, and we've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, listening to them and, mm -hmm. and asking them, all right, where are you stuck? Like, yeah. what, what can we help I, with? I think, yeah, I think if you go back to the, like the early days of Strong Towns, it, it, there was like kind of three phases. Phase one was me trying to figure stuff out with a lot of people commenting and like pointing me in different directions and saying, you really need to read this and read that and talk to this person. And here's where you're wrong. Um, so if you go back and read like the old stuff, the early stuff I wrote, a lot of it is just cringy because it's me say it's me, you know, saying stuff. And then people are like, you got your head up here. You know what, buddy, like <laughs> figure this out. Um, the, the middle phase, though, is us trying to um, take a message that had kind of been refined 
and then get that out to the masses and try to grow a, a, a huge movement of people. And yeah, I look back in, in 2015, we reached a hundred thousand people in a year. Uh, oh. and, and that, yeah, that seems like a lot. It was 2.1 million last year. So, you know, in five years, we took a, a blog that was kind of niche and influential in a niche. And we, we try to grow it to be like a, a, a mainstream urbanist kind of thing where, where lots of people were reading it and you, you needed to read it. You needed to listen to the podcast. You needed to be in on the conversation. We're now shifting and have kind of shifted to, I think what, what we think of as stage three or phase three, which is how do we uh, help these, these people that we're connected to take that, what we just say is the next step. Mm. Um, we're not interested in reforming, uh, you know, the, the federal funding formula for this and that. There's people out working on that. I, I, what we're focused on is how does that person who really cares about their city use their energy to do something that will make a difference? And how do we build momentum at that level so that they can take the next step and the next step and the next step and the next step? And, and we're starting to see really huge, you know, payback from that mindset and thinking and and the cool thing about it is it's a it's a feedback loop so once we find someone you know in shreveport who has success doing that all of a sudden someone in memphis and we can we can highlight that and talk about it someone in memphis is going to copy it someone in portland maine is going to copy it someone out in california is going to copy it and and then we're going to learn from those and kind of reflect those back and you start to create these these feedback loops where you really empower thousands and thousands of people to do things for themselves in ways that have really started to shift the culture and the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the, the people that are listening are, are those types that, that do believe that, you know, they, they have the ability, they have the power to, to make big changes in their community by by real estate development through real estate development and more particularly most often more of those infill and incremental type developments that strong towns is is pretty big on to begin with uh so how can i thought there's this really interesting part of your book well you know the first first bit of the book tells all about you know how how towns grew you know, and highlights that uh, succession, you know. And I was wondering if you could address how, you know, the developers, these these people, you know, that are doing things in Shreveport or Memphis or, or these other towns that are making an impact, um, how can they, looking at more of the infill development or incremental development, how can they look at, um kind of what happened in the past and ultimately utilize that because a lot of what we learn is what from is what happened in the past and things are you know nothing's brand new right so right how can we learn from the past and help to you know create a better future for those towns it's a it's a really good question i i i think it's important to start out acknowledging or, 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 or stating as a matter of fact that incremental developers are 
to me, heroes uh, today in our system. They, they, they are, I, I look at them in the same way that I think you would look at soldiers in a battlefield. Um, people who are out doing something that, you know, in a very narrow sense will benefit them because, you know, as a soldier, when you go off to war to fight, you want to come back to a country that, that you, you know, you want to, you want it to be better. You, you believe in some ideals and some things. Um, but, but in a, in a broader sense, they're doing something that benefits all of society and, and, and they are disproportionately undertaking risk and sacrifice in order to make that happen. And to Absolutely. me, that's that's what a hero is. And so I, I, when I get around people who are doing incremental development or are incremental developers, I feel like I'm in the presence of, of a modern day hero, someone who is, you know, uh, doing something heroic for the betterment of society. I, 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 my friend, John Anderson, who is with the, you know, uh, one of these kind of iconic incremental developers, someone who's, mm -hmm. A lot of people have learned from. He he talks about return on brain damage as mm -hmm. being like a metric. You know, we talk about return on capital and mm -hmm. return on your time and return on this. And he he calls it return on brain damage. And I I, I feel like there is a certain um, th there's a certain acknowledgement that we should have that doing this kind of work is. Uh, counter to kind of all the systems that we've set up. Um, I, when I was in graduate school, I bought a home from DR Horton, which is mm -hmm. one of the nation's largest home builders. And they made the process like re, we, we were looking for a place to rent. We had two dogs. Um, we couldn't find a place to rent. The prices were high. They didn't like the dogs. I didn't blame them. We wound up, it was cheaper to buy a house than it was to rent up a place. And so we wound up buying a house, which was kind of a bizarre experience because I already owned a house and I was a grad student and I had no income, but you know, like the money worked out in, in kind of this, you know, housing bubble kind of way. Um, but DR Horton made everything super easy, right? For me as the buyer, they said, you know, you want to buy this house, it's 130,000 at the time, this was 2000. Um, you know, you could actually afford this $400,000 house. I'm like, no, I can't. And they're like, yeah, you can. And they had this whole kind of like sales pitch process. Well, if you dig into DR Horton, basically, you know, as a large builder, the entire industry is set up and designed to make them successful mm -hmm. from, you know, the way they are capitalized through the stock market to uh, the way that like cities just turn, you know, turn everything over to get them in, to come in and build the, the thousand homes at one time uh, to the regulatory process with the environmental reviews. And it, it's, it's basically like the world is wired and set up for them to succeed in selling this marginal junkie product that is bankrupting our cities. So you look at it and, and this is a really bad, you know, way for us as a country to do business. But, but it is the way that we've set things up is to benefit them. And so if you're an incremental developer, you are on one hand uh, trying to compete in a marketplace that is designed for someone else working at a different scale. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to find a way to, you know, find your niche and find your, um, 
you know, your, your, your way of, you know, making it through. And I, I think that's really hard because part of being an incremental developer is having love and passion for a project, for a place and passions blind us. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, it's hard to be like the hard, cold realist on a, on a project when you actually really like deeply love a place or a neighborhood or a block. Um, and, 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 you know, recognizing that you're in this marketplace wired for someone else, your margin for error winds up to be very, very small. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like um, cities today, whether it's local governments, whether it's, um, you know, the, the people who are within financial institutions that still have some local discretion that they can exercise, because uh, a lot of these places are beholden to secondary markets and, and they're, you know, they, they have become just paper pushers too, more than actual like loan agents and stuff. But to the, the extent that there is discretion, um, I think we need to do everything we can to create a, 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 a kind of protective moat around our incremental development community so that they can compete with each other and compete within a marketplace but so that they are as insulated as we can make them from these outside insane forces of, you know, subsidized capital and, 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 and uh, you know, hot money flows and, and everything else that is making the housing market kind of like the most insane market in the world, really, mm-hmm. you know, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no. And I, I think that that kind of, brings me into the, my next question is uh, with this kind of uh, public, uh, you know, public policy in place, how can you create successful public-private partnerships in, a, in a, an economy like this where we are benefiting the larger, the DR Hortons and the, you know, the other single family residential builders how do you how do how can you foster those relationships and and what is that what is a successful project for a public private partnership look like really that that's a that's a very i can take that way question many like loaded ways so (laughs) let, let me let me make one observation and then let me let you uh kind of calibrate this because sure a, a lot of the public partner, public-private partnerships I see, are aligned in in this way. Either the public is taking the risk, and the private entity is providing the capital, which is like a horrible situation because you know you, you, governments have no problem accessing capital today if they really need it and if there's a good investment. But for the government, to, basically the government has all the downside risk and the private sector has all the upside potential because they're providing the capital. And we look at this as like a good thing because we don't have to raise taxes or borrow money or do whatever. It's, it's, it's the stupidest kind of investment we can make. It, it would be the, the equivalent of you and me doing an investment together where I loan you the money. Uh, and then if we win, I get all the winnings. And if we lose, you have to pay me back. That that's 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 a public-private partnership. The way that it works mechanistically. The mm-hmm. the other way I see it working is uh, governments who um, have an asset 
that actually has value will, in a sense, hawk that asset, like they'll pawn it off on, in the private sector and kind of cash it out like you would cash out an annuity or sell the family silver. And, and then you will you know, lease that back and you'll call that a public-private partnership. And all you're doing is just, in a sense, cashing out your annuity and taking all that cash up front so you can plug today's budget hole by making tomorrow's worse. So tell me what tell me what tell me what you see as a public private partnership because I'm I am really cynical of the term because I I feel like you know the, the political the the political desperation we have financially has induced cities to do really insane things under this umbrella of public private partnership. Sure. Yeah, I mean it- a lot of what I see is similar to what you're saying that that first, uh, you know, a lot of them call it, you know, TIFs or various other uh, tax incremented developments. And, and they're basically taking on that debt with the assumption that tax rates are going to increase in the area. And, you know, it's a big win for everybody. So that's what I'm used to seeing. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I do think that um, the proper role of a public-private partnership is where the uh, the private sector takes risk that the public sector can't take. So mm-hmm. I, my look at like local government and my look at the the public sector is that we should be ultra conservative. Um, I think we, every time we spend money, and I know this is very unpopular, particularly among progressives who think government should be the difference maker in everything and and out taking all the risks and doing all this. I, I look at the opposite. I look at this like every time the government's taking a risk, they're taking it out of like my children's future. So like, you know, if you want to take money out of a kid's hand and put it into this, you better be able to turn around and say, here's your return on that investment. I, I want the platform of government to be a very conservative, low risk kind of environment. Within that, I want a lot of risk taking, but I want that risk taking to be in the private sector. And and part of the the trade-off of the private sector is saying, if you take the risk, you're gonna have the upside potential of that, but you're also gonna take the downside potential of that. And so I can see instances where governments would use a, a tax increment financing, type of program or a a tax subsidy type of program where they would say um, in kind of like Warren Buffett style, uh, we'll help, you know, we'll make this investment here, but we want downside protection. So if this goes bad, basically we maybe defer for three or four or five years when we get paid back because we can be a little bit patient with our capital, but we're eventually going to get paid back with interest. So like, Mm. you know, that that's going to be there. And then we want a little bit of upside potential here too. Like if this goes really well and we are the the kind of gap financing or if our tax subsidy is the thing that made this work, uh, we're going to have some of that upside gain too. So, you know, let's sit down and have projections of what like a reasonable return on investment is for you. If that is 10% a year, you know, okay, let's look at that. If you wind up at 15% a year, we want to split that uh, 5% with you, that 5% gap. Like we, th- there should be some like upside for the taxpayer, for the, the person, you know, the, the entity, the, the, the city that's making this investment beyond just 
you know, yay, we get tax base and we get this because we th that's like the base. That's mm -hmm. that that that's the prerequisite for us doing anything should be that it is, you know, like viable. Um, what what I always struggle with are the cities who go out and do things that uh, financially are non-retiring, um, you know, like my city subsidized a, a, a drive-through uh, restaurant, a franchise restaurant to come in. Oh yeah, we gave them 26 years of tax subsidy because we wanted, you know, the place was, the, the block was blighted. We wanted it fixed up and all this. When you, when you run the numbers on it, the city is essentially like guaranteed to lose money. Like there's, right. we've given up all this tax. We put this money into it and we're actually guaranteed to lose money. But the justification was it will be a nicer development when it's done. And to me, that was like, okay, if, if you just start with that as your goal, to me, the, the, the goal should be that, but the constraint should be, you can't lose money doing it. You know, like, why is, why is, why is raising taxes on everybody in order to accomplish that goal? Like somehow making us all better off. Like I, I, that doesn't make any sense. Cities do those kind of things all the time. Oh yeah. And, and I feel like I mentioned Warren Buffett, I, Warren Buffett, um, the, it, there's this myth about Warren Buffett that he is some type of like genius stock picker. He's not what Warren Buffett is. And this is, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm me, he's a multi-billionaire. <laughs> right. Obviously he's, you know, I think in our, in, in our vernacular, he's way smarter than me. He must be because he's a billionaire. I think it's important to understand what Buffett does. Buffett uses his clout and his positioning to leverage himself into very low risk, high return types of investments. So when Bank of America is going broke and he knows that there is a government rescue that's going to come, that's going to prevent that, he can go in and loan Bank of America $5 billion and get class A stock in return that he has the right to sell out at optimum prices within a certain time frame. He can negotiate that. You and I can't do that, but he can do that because of the leverage that he has. Right. And, and basically like the desperation that you, that Bank of America is in when they do this, this deal with him. Um, that made him billions of dollars like that with like no risk. Cities actually have that potential as well. We have that potential to go in and be very, uh, you know, the very shrewd kind of kingmaker within our places and say, on behalf of the public, um, we're not out here to take a bath and to like throw money away and, and you know, make it rain for private business. Uh, you come here, we're going to make a deal with you. We will work with you, but we're going to have upside in it. You're going to have the downside risk. And if this works out, we're both going to win. And if this doesn't work out, the taxpayers of the city are not going to take it in the shorts. And, and the reality is, is if we did that and made our cities like stronger and healthier and more financially successful, what would happen is you would get a Warren Buffett-like effect where like, wow, if the city of Brainerd is willing to do that, it must be a good job. If the city of Brainerd is doing that, it must be really nice. They're really smart people. They're really savvy. Like, I really want to live in that city. Look, they've got money for parks and they've got money for this. And like the things there are very nice. Instead, what we do is we like have strung ourselves out like some type of addict chasing like the next thing all the time. 
and, and we're always short of money and we're always short of resources. Yeah. It, it should be the exact opposite. Yeah. I guess, I guess, how do you get that? That mindset's tough when you have, when you have neighboring cities that are willing to take it in the shorts. So how do you, how do you combat that? I always love that because <laughs> it, it, it is this, you know, um, Okay, I, I do. I I would agree with people who say that cities are not businesses and they should not be run like a business. Agree with that. Um, you know, the goal of the city is not to maximize our profit, right? It's not to maximize our ROI. But there are lots of business principles that, if people who ran cities understood them, they would be way better off. Here's mm -hmm. like basic principle, like running a business one on one. If something costs you a hundred dollars. To, to, to produce and bring to market. If you sell it for less than $100, you are losing money. And if you do that long enough, you will no longer be around. Mm -hmm. If your competition is going to do that, let them bankrupt themselves, you know? Like, like let them do that. And, and you're kind of like saying, well, if they're going to if they're going to lose money on this transaction then i have to lose money on it and i have to like race them to the bottom you you're going to have to find a different way to differentiate yourself in the marketplace than pure price mm -hmm. and if pure price is the only thing you have you're in the weakest economic position that you have yeah. and as a business you're likely to be gone very soon uh, the most successful businesses are the ones where actually people will pay a premium for their product because it is positioned in the marketplace as like a premium. The worst ones are the ones where it's all competing on price. Oh yeah. I agree so, with that. So to yeah. me, if like the neighboring city wants to, the, the, the one that I get all the time is the Walmart. The Walmart comes, the Walmart will say, okay, I can go in city A or I can go in city B. Um, which one will give me the best subsidy package? And basically like the the the, the game theory says, whatever city will give you break even plus $1, that's the city that will get it, right? Um, because, you know, I can, under, I can always underbid you until we get to that point. Um, but that is usually done on like a cash basis. It's never done on an accrual basis. So cities discount how much it's going to cost to have their police department out, you know, at doing four calls a day to Walmart. They discount how much it's going to cost to replace all that road and street and, and curb and drainage systems around the Walmart. They, they discount the fact that Walmarts typically last 15 to 20 years and then they close up and move to somewhere else. Uh, you know, while the utilities essentially go on indefinitely forever, the, all the costs that we have. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you look at it um, as cities, these are, these are almost always bad transactions. And, you know, as painful as it can be, to let the other guy win. I think if we accounted our balance sheets, you know, not from a cash basis, but from actually like an accrual basis, uh, you know, the way, a, the way a private business would or the way a publicly traded company is required to by SEC rules, um, you would have a very different, uh, you know, way of measuring what success right. looks like. Right. C cities, a lot of people don't know this, but cities budget, um, city budgets are done on a cash basis. And, you know, this is different than an accrual basis. If a city goes out and borrows a million dollars, 
they will actually show that in the present year budget as a million dollars of revenue. If you and I were running a business and we went out and borrowed a million dollars, we would show it as a million dollar cash with a corresponding million dollar liability. Mm-hmm. Our balance sheet would be even. For cities, the liability is not reported on their general ledger balance sheet. It's tucked away back in like some little other thing, but it's not <laughs> reported on their general ledger. So the city like literally reports, we have a million dollars of revenue with no corresponding you know, obligation. Well, now do that, but do that for roads and do that for pipe and do that for the new library and all that. Those all show up as assets, as like things that we're doing that create wealth, but the liability is nowhere in there. The, the, the fact that you have to go out and fix that, you know, put a new roof on that library in 20 years, that is nowhere in the public ledger. So when we get that new Walmart, we can just show like, we're making it rain, baby. Um, because we ignore all the, you know, accrued liabilities and costs that go along with that. Absolutely. That, does that make sense? Yeah. It's no, it a, makes it makes a lot of sense. It's I, such a perverse thing. <laughs> yeah, and you know, part of this movement, I'm sure, is is having that discussion with people because people don't normally see the city budget. Uh, you know, the elected officials pay attention to it. Yeah, elected officials don't get the city budget. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I think that's the that's the thing that is most bizarre is that public officials are given documents that are really opaque and and don't explain the actual city budget situation. And that is standard accounting practice. I mean, that's not something that nefarious like like their city staffs are are trying to lie to them or cheat them. That's like literally the way the accounting rules are set up, you know, because they were set up for bond agents. I mean, can you make your bond payment this year is basically mm-hmm. how they were set up. They were not set up to like have public officials make discernment about what is a good project or not, or, you know, what's a good investment or not, or what should our community be spending money on? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, um, the, the, the one kind of centralizing theme here is that I feel like we have a lot of really good actors, like good people with good intentions who have been, you know, bequeath this really corrupting, um, you know, uh, system that is producing, you know, is, is inducing them to, to, you know, to do things that I think they, they generally don't want to do. Mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you how many projects I was involved in where I'm like, this is a bad project. And everybody around the table would go, yeah, this is a really bad project. Uh, all well, in favor. Do it anyway. I, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and I mean, part of it for me was I was sitting at the table and like, I would get, I remember sitting at a table once with a big project. And I mean, I'm talking like multi-million dollar project. If the project went forth, like my firm uh, was going to get, hundreds of thousands of dollars of fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked over at the bond agent and the bond agent was going to get hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees. Um, I looked over at, you know, the other consultants there and basically like if this project didn't go forward, none of us were going to, none of them were going to get paid. And if it did, they were, they were all going to, you know, do well. Um, I looked at all the politicians at the table and I recognized that, you know, 
uh, all of them had promised to like make things happen. And there were people in the community who were expecting them to do, do things, you know, mm. uh, like, you know, go out and do things, make stuff happen. And that, you know, well, running for city council is not like a glamorous power position. You don't leverage yourself for millions of dollars of gain. No one, you know, you can be in Congress for 40 years and, and make a hundred thousand a year and walk out a multimillionaire. You never do that at the city council. Like that's not how it works. But yet all these people felt a certain like social pressure and connection to sure. their neighbors and everybody to, to actually do things, not to be the negative person who voted against stuff. Yeah. And and then you looked at the city staff and you recognize that, you know, all of them and, and their careers are all kind of built around not only the momentum of like doing things, like who wants to just sit around and maintain stuff and, you know, like go through the motions. Um, but those of them that were younger or had like career trajectories in mind, if they can go to the next place and say, you know what, I worked here 20 years and I just maintained a really good system at very low cost. Boring. You know, if you go <laughs> say, I made this yeah. project happen and this project happen and I got this funding stream and I said this, 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 they're padding a resume. And so the incentive of every single person sitting around the table was to do a project that we all knew was a bad project. And I, I, I think you're asking human nature to have a really high lift. You're, you're putting a lot of burden on human nature if you expect humans to not do that project. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I think a lot of that also goes back to the idea that most people will uh, neglect future investment over present gain. I mean, it's it's kind of, hey, I'm going to skip this cookie and I'll, I'll be, you know. <laughs> we are shape. wired. Well, the psychologists have shown us that we're we're not wired to disc. We're we're wired to cognitively discount things. So, mm -hmm. right. You know, I, 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 you and I, you know, I give you a hundred dollars today. I'll give you a thousand dollars ten years from now. Well, if we put that into a contract, you could take that thousand dollars and, uh, you know, payment 10 years from now and go turn it into cash today and get more than a hundred dollars. But, but the, the gut of us feels like, you know, why well, I want that hundred bucks today, right? Yeah. Why wait? You know, um, we, we are, we are wired that way as humans and it takes a lot of very you know, thought. And, and I, and I would say, you know, surrounded by systems. And, and for me, it's systems that, um, very much localize things because when you, the, the more you localize two things happen when you localize decisions, systems, spending feedback loops. The, the first one is that um, there's only a limited amount of mistake you can make, you know, um, it, it, you, you, you can do a ton of damage with a huge budget and, and, you know, uh, a kind of unlimited power. I mean, you can, you can destroy a lot of things very quickly and, mm -hmm. and, and kind of curse your city, your place for decades, you know, get the, get the wrong grant, do the wrong project and, and you can do serious harm. When you're working at the block level, there's only so much damage you can do. I mean, it's hard to screw up much and, and you're going to learn from it and you're going to learn at a small scale. I, I think the other part is that while we do have this cognitive discounting in our brains, um, we also have, you know, features of, of, of rationality. And I would just, I would use the word morality. I, I think we have a connection to each other that manifests most clearly at, at the block level, you know, mm -hmm. amongst neighbors, amongst people. And this idea of 
you know, uh, systems that exploit, systems that are gluttonous, systems that, uh, you know, overreach or do things that 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 really maybe aren't of high value and high benefit. I think those things are easier to do the more disconnected they are from people. Oh yeah, yeah, right, absolutely. You know, if I have to sit down with my neighbors and talk about why we're going to add an extra eight feet to this street just because we want to meet some standard where there's a, you know, a buffer lane over here, they're going to be like, that seems like BS. You know, like, <laughs> why would we do that? Why would we spend that much money? Like, I don't really want. And and so you wind up, I think, with things that um, are more human and, mm. and, and there's a, there's a, there's a better, like, uh, feedback loop to push back on some of the craziness that happens when we work at this large transformative scale. Sure. That's unpopular because as Americans, we like to flip over the chessboard and recreate everything in a new way, you know, every generation or so. Um, but if we're going to do it, let's do it from the bottom up, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of brings me back to my last kind of question here more to more to the development but you know the, the people that are developing these areas uh, these incremental developments they believe in that and they that that feedback loop like you're saying at that level is, is much stronger so how would you gauge some of the, the attributes of one of these successful developments at that level and, and how would that help to build out um, potentially your, your strong town. And then, you know, from there, the rest of the country, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's like you said, you you got to start small. So can you, can you touch on some of those attributes of maybe a successful development from a strong town perspective? Yeah. Um, for me, uh, I, I look at our cities today as, um, you know, I, I've used this this analogy of like the emaciated person, the, the person who's starved of, of resources, starved of, of nutrients, and they become very thin and gaunt and, and they just lack muscle mass. When I look at our cities, you know, that's what I see. I see the starving person um, because you have the superstructure there. You have the bones, you have the tendons, you have the blood vessels, but you'd have no meat on the bones. Everything is so spread out. Uh, our, our financial productivity as it relates to the cost of providing that framework is so low, it, it needs to increase. Mm -hmm. And so to me, um, what, what I look at it as, and what I look at success is providing that nourishment, putting meat on the bones. What can we do that puts, puts meat on the bones? I, 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 I'm very um, kind of insistent uh, and I've, I've almost been included of, accused of being like almost cult-like or obsessive about this idea that we work in increments. Mm -hmm. But part of it is this understanding that, you know, using this analogy of, of the emaciated person, if you, um, you know, really like fill them up really quickly, or you, um, you know, give them like a big pack to carry, or you do something that is just like disproportionate, what, what happens is like the system doesn't respond. What it needs to do is it needs to thicken up over a broad area, kind of collectively over time. And so to me, the best projects are ones that, if we look at a, a block or a neighborhood, what they are is they are the next increment of evolution in that neighborhood. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, to me, the easiest way to think about this is a neighborhood of single family homes, which is, you know, 95% of all residential neighborhoods today in, in the US. If we look at a, a neighborhood of single family homes, what the next evolution of that neighborhood is, is a neighborhood of single family homes that would also include some duplexes and some single family homes that have like accessory apartments with them. Mm-hmm. That's what that evolution of that neighborhood looks like. That's that's like the next step. And if you can get to that next step of the evolution um, where, you know, I can go out there and I look at the neighborhood and I get the sense of what it's like. And I go back a decade later and it just looks like a slightly more mature version of that. That's a little bit thicker, a little bit more developed, a little bit more intense, but it has the same kind of character and feel and sense now I'm doing something really productive. Now, now I'm taking what is a, a a toddler of a neighborhood and I'm growing it into an adolescent of a neighborhood. And my goal should be to grow it into a teenager of a neighborhood and then a young adult. And then I can just keep maturing it along the path. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, let's contrast that with what I think is not success, where we go from toddler to, you know, 50-year-old adult in five years. You know, we just skip all these life cycles and, and jump up. Because what will inevitably happen is that you you might sit and measure success there and like, well, our tax base is higher and our job growth is higher and whatever. But if you look around, what has happened is that the rest of the body of the city, the rest of the, 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 the neighborhoods will have stagnated in the interim. They will have sat there at this like lower state. And oftentimes those big leaps distort the underlying property value mechanisms and and sideline the incremental developers, sideline the people that want to do those incremental things because you screwed up the underlying cost structure. And it makes it uh, to where, you know, you have, yes, big growth in one place with everything else kind of stagnating. To me, a healthy community, a healthy place is one where every neighborhood is thickening up a little bit, becoming a little bit more mature, a little bit better off. People are having a little bit more opportunity in that place every you know, year after year after year. There's an upward momentum and trajectory. Mm-hmm. And really, I think we can translate into this to human emotion almost. If you look out your window, if you walk out your front door and you look at your neighborhood and you see better times ahead, like this neighborhood is changing but it's changing for the better and it's going to keep getting better so that my experience here is going to become over time better. That's success. That's winning. That, that, that's what you want the feeling to be like. If people walk out their front door and they say either one, my neighborhood's unrecognizable. It, it's, it's changing so fast and so dramatic that I, I don't even know what's going to happen next. Like this is just insane. Or if they walk out the window saying, I see no future for my neighborhood. This is the best it's going to be. (laughs) Yeah, this is it. This is the peak. And any change from this is going to be worse. Those two situations are deeply untenable, deeply untenable and not conducive to a strong town. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Well, looking forward, um, say I was to Google your name, Wikipedia, your name, I'm sure it's going to be around in couple hundred years what would uh what would i find as being your legacy and strong town's legacy i always i know this is a tough question but i'd like to hear um where you're going and what you see the future of this this uh movement be um internally we've talked about 
you know, where we want to, what our, what our long-term goals are as an organization. And, you know, I, I founded this thing and someday I will be gone from it and there'll be people left. I, I want to make sure that we pass on that our goal is to go away, to, to not be necessary at all. Um, and, and I hope this is how history writes it. I, I hope history writes, there are thousands of years of, of, of human, humans building their habitat, building cities. And the cities were built around humans to make them fully human, to, 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 to build to their needs. For a, for a brief period of time, all these other forces came together. Uh, the, the industrial revolution, revolution of mechanics, revolution in energy, um, and, and to create this kind of brief period where we tried something different. And we learned from, from that experiment, that, that, that grand like continental scale experiment, that humans did not thrive in that and that did not work. And so there was this movement in the early 21st century to not go back to horse and buggy and not return to the past, but to take the best collective wisdom and in a very like, you know, biological, almost Darwin kind of learn from evolutionary insights, uh, reapply that to uh, the way we built our cities. And now we are able to live in places that are well attuned to who we are, that do meet our needs, that, that are places that uh, help us realize and actualize what it means to be a, a human being. We've created, recreated human habitat. And if, if we get to that point, whether my name is brought up in that or not, um, I don't really care. But, but to me, I, I feel like that's the history I want to have written is that we did something one way, we went insane for a while, and then we recognized that and, and, and fixed it. That would be, that would be perfect. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. I, ho I hope that is the legacy too, because uh, when you said it's, it's not really sustainable, uh, the, current, the it, current trajectory. So. Exactly. Well, in, in humans, I mean, I think the one thing about evolution is that you try many different things. Um, and, and a lot of them are dead ends, right? It's like evolutionary dead ends, like this didn't work. And I think as humans, we kind of think of ourselves as outside of evolutionary processes. The, the pandemic might have humbled us a little bit on that. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I think what we have created is an evolutionary dead end. That's going to cause, that has caused and will cause a lot of suffering and misery. And I think we have a, an obligation to try to minimize that. But that doesn't mean that it's not a dead end and that we can't change. We do have right. to figure out something else. Wow. There is tons more <laughs> I could ask yeah, and want to ask, but uh, I want to be respectful of your time. So well, we can do this again yeah, at some I would point love in the to. future. I do I have the, the book coming out in August and maybe we can, as an engineer, maybe you want to sift through that and we can, we can chat again. Absolutely. Well, can you tell others on the show where they might be able to find more about you? I mean, I'll include links, obviously. Yeah, yeah. All no, stuff, all of our stuff is at strongtowns.org and, and we publish new articles two, three times a day. Uh, we have three different podcast streams as well. And, um, you know, put out a lot of video. We, we are creating a lot of content for people to try to not only understand this, this, this movement themselves, 
but but more importantly to share it and talk about it with other people so that that people can communicate this to others in a way that will help them come together and, and make their place stronger. Wow. Yeah. yeah, there is there's tons on the website, so I, I would definitely yeah. check it out if you haven't already. So. Yeah, I can't keep up with it all. So um, <laughs> we've got a great team here that 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 works on that, and I quite frankly can't read it all either. So pick and choose what works for you, and and you know what helps you. That's the way that I would recommend. Awesome. Any any closing words of advice before we? take off. Hey, thanks, man. At the end of our podcast, we just say, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. And and it's all about, you know, taking that next step. So go take whatever that next step is for you. Go take it. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you for your time. Hey, thank you. 